Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. Last week, we had the privilege of hearing from a visiting missionary, and that was great. This morning, we return to our main sermon series, our study of Jeremiah. This is our 16th sermon in the series, and my plan is for us to finish up the study of Jeremiah just before Easter. We will see if that happens, but that is my plan. And that leaves us about seven sermons left in our study of this great book. Now, in our last message, if you were here for it, we focused on Jeremiah's most famous sermon. Uh, It was the sermon he preached at the temple in Jeremiah chapter 7, where he calls out the people for trusting in the temple of the Lord rather than in the Lord of the temple. Perhaps you remember those words where Jeremiah says, do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The people had bought into the lie that as long as they kept going to the temple, God really didn't care how they lived at home or at work or in the community. And perhaps more than anything, they bought into the lie that the temple itself could save them. As long as that temple was standing, nothing could defeat them. But this was all a lie. Jeremiah calls it out in that sermon in chapter 7. Now, for the next couple of weeks, I want to do something similar to that last sermon, where we slow down and look closely at one key chapter in the book. Last time it was Jeremiah 7, and for today it'll be Jeremiah chapter 9. So let's take a look just at the first verse of Jeremiah chapter 9. It's it's pretty jarring. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Okay, that is an intense beginning to a chapter. Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears. Now, as we think about that, okay, what might we want to ask Jeremiah about that? I think maybe the most obvious question is we'd be asking, like, what happened? You know, what, why, are you, why do you cry out like that? And to answer that, all you have to do is look back a couple verses into chapter 8. Okay, and what we're going to see there is that this, this scene is just one of the many times in Jeremiah's life where he saw with his own eyes the devastation of war. So look back at chapter 8, verse 15, to get a feel for this. Chapter 8, verse 15. Jeremiah says, We we looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. And then he gets more specific of what was happening. Verse 16. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. And at the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. Now, who's that about? That's about the armies of Babylon. They are, they are coming to destroy the land and the people. You could hear it. And then Jeremiah saw it 
happen. And that's why he's weeping at the beginning of chapter 9. But it is more than just that. Because anyone might weep to see the kind of things that he saw. I mean, we still weep today at the horrors of war. But Jeremiah weeps because he also knows exactly why it's happening. This is not just a senseless tragedy or coincidence. Because look at verse 17, chapter 8, verse 17. And you'll see who's behind it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders or, or vipers, that cannot be charmed, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. You see, this, this isn't simply a story of one violent nation crushing another. There have been many sad stories like that in the world. But there, are, there is more to this story than, than that, and Jeremiah knows it. He knows this is actually God's own doing. God is using Babylon to bring down his own judgment on his own people for their rebellion against him. And Jeremiah, maybe most people didn't see it, but he saw it clearly. And so he weeps and he even cries out in chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I had the strength to weep day and night for the slain of my people. But that's not all he feels. Okay, because look at verse 2 of chapter 9. Chapter 2, or chapter 9, verse 2. He says something else. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place so that I could leave my people and go away from them. So this is the kind of conflict that is in his heart throughout, throughout the book, throughout his life. On the one hand, he's like, I love my people. And on the other hand, he's like, I cannot stand these people. You know, I, I weep for them, and I wish I could run away from them and never see them again. Now, why does he feel that way? Like, why does he want to flee from his people? Look at verse 2 again, and when you just read on. He says, for, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. That's hard for me to picture that, but try to pick. I don't know what comes to your mind. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me declares the Lord. So that, that's why he wants to run away. The entire society has broken down. You can't trust anyone. Adultery is rampant. The people run from one evil to another. And did you notice why? It's the last line. They do not know me, declares the Lord. This is what it looks like when a society does not know the Lord when people do not acknowledge the Lord, when they don't have a real relationship with the Lord, this is what happens. And the description goes on. Look at verse 4. 
Let everyone beware of his neighbor. Put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver. Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Hearing oppression, heaping oppression on oppression, deceit on deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Now, now I think we may look around in our own day and mourn over the things that we see around us, and there's a place for that. But I would imagine that most of us haven't seen anything quite like this, where you can't trust even your own family, where you couldn't trust any of your neighbors, where people are getting tired simply because they're working so hard at sinning. And again, did you notice where the passage ends? Heaping oppression on oppression, deceit on deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. So it ends in the same place. Now, most of those six verses describe Jeremiah, his experience. And they help us to understand how he can feel like this. I love these people, and I at least don't want to be anywhere near them. <laughs> okay? But the next verses show us what God is seeing and what he thinks about what's happening. So look at verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do? Because of my people. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a people like this? So what does God see? I, I think he sees what Jeremiah sees. The pictures are graphic. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. So in the last one, it's like bent like a bow. This one, the tongue is a deadly arrow. Each, everybody speaks peace to their neighbor with their mouth, but in their hearts, they're planning an ambush. And did you hear what God asks? Because God asks a couple of questions. Did you notice? Verse 7 at the end, God says, I'm going to refine them for what else can I do? And then in verse 9, God asks, shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on a people like this? God cannot, will not let the things go. He will act, and shouldn't he? That's what God asks. I mean, God is asking more or less, isn't this the right thing for me to do? Shall I not punish them for these things? And by the way, who is God asking that, those questions to? What do you think? You ever paid attention to questions like, who is God talking to? When he says, shall I not punish them for these things? I mean, maybe he's talking with Jeremiah, but, but the questions certainly jump off the page to everyone who's been reading this for a long time. I mean, God is inviting us to consider his questions. Shall I not avenge myself on a people that lives like this? What do you think? Isn't this the right thing for God to do? 
we might not want to answer that question because it's not pleasant to think about God's judgment or to say that God should judge people. But God is probing our hearts. He's pressing us to answer the question. Shall I not punish people who live like this? And the answer we have to give is yes. Lord, this is what you should do. This is what's right. And this is what God will do. God will judge. He will always uphold his justice. But I think we can also sense in the way that God asks the questions that this isn't something that God takes joy in. God does not want to judge his people like this. And this, this reminds me of when God tells the prophet Ezekiel around the same time, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We get that sense here too. God will judge, but he takes no pleasure in it, no joy in it. This is not what he wants to be doing to his people. But what we read in the next verses takes that idea to a whole new level. Okay, and, and I'm going to pick up in verse 9, because you've got to see verses 9 all the way to verse 11. Okay, so look at verse 9. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation like this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they're laid waste so that no one passes through. The lowing of cattle isn't heard. Both the birds of the air and the beast have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Okay, now, now, what is the most shocking thing in those verses? It is what God says in verse 10. I will take up weeping and wailing. Now, at first, okay, we may be inclined to think maybe that's Jeremiah speaking in verse 10. And that is not impossible. Okay? There are some who take the text that way, and that's fine. Okay, that, that could be. And by the way, this is often a question when you read Jeremiah. If you have been reading it, and I know Peter is my Jeremiah guy. We always love talking about it. It is often hard to know when Jeremiah is talking and when God is talking. Okay? And in a lot of cases, I'm not sure it's necessary to distinguish or even possible to distinguish. After all, Jeremiah represents God. And God says at the beginning of the book, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And so it's, it's often hard to tell. But in this passage here, it seems more likely to me and to many others that God, is, that God is speaking throughout that whole text from verses 9 to 11. That's why I wanted to read it together. I mean, God is clearly talking in verse 9. Shall I not punish them for these things? 
and God is clearly talking in verse 11, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins. And, and I think that though it's shocking, in this poetry, God is talking when he says, and I will take up weeping and a lamentation for what happens. Now, I want to say a few things here. As you can imagine, there are many discussions in theology about texts like this one, okay? about the emotions of God, about a picture like this of God weeping. Now, I do not plan to go off into a long discussion about those debates, though there is a place for that. And I've read a fair, about, fair bit about them this week. So if you want to talk with me about the doctrine of divine impassibility, and I put that in Spanish for my translate, <laughs> impassibilidad divina. <laughs> if you want to talk about that afterwards, feel free, okay? Because that's a very good discussion. Okay? But what I want to do is I want to stay close to this text and think about the picture. It's poetry, and so we're supposed to slow down and be grabbed by the picture that's being painted in the text. God sees and knows all that's happening. Nobody else sees all that's happening. God sees it all. He sees all the sins of all his people. And so God asks, shall I not avenge myself on a people like this? And the answer is clearly, yes, God, you should do it. You're right to do it. And God says, so I will do it. I will judge them. But what does God say in the middle? I will take up weeping and wailing and a lamentation. Okay, this, I think, is similar to the line in Ezekiel. I have no pleasure in destroying the wicked. But this goes further. This is like God adding, in fact, I mourn over their death. Now, we might, we might read this and then want to ask, okay, wait a second. Does God have, like, literal tears, you know, like ours? It's fine to ask that question. The answer is no. And I, I think we already recognize that in, when we read many texts of the Bible that talk about God's eyes or God's ears, we might read those and ask, wait a second, does God have eyes like ours? Does God have ears like ours? And we say, no, but, but yet God sees, doesn't he? Yes, better than we do. And God truly hears, doesn't he? Yes, better than we do. And though I don't think we can fully understand this, this picture is supposed to grab us. God is using our language to help us understand him. Human language to help us know him. And in the picture, in the poetry, God is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. So, so if you think about the chapter, at the beginning, Jeremiah is weeping. And now in the middle, God himself is pictured as weeping over the devastation. The land is being undone. The people are being destroyed. There's silence in the land. And at least in the picture, the only sound is the lamentation of God. 
Now, I do not fully understand this, but I do think that texts like this prepare us in some way for those gripping themes in the New Testament where we see the Son of God in human flesh weeping at the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, or where we see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem weeping over the city, or where Paul tells us things like, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by how you talk to each other. Now, again, more could be said about that, but I want to keep moving in the text because God has more questions to ask in the text. Look at verse 12. God continues the questions. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? And here's the key question. Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? That's God's, those are God's questions. And that last one, do you know the answer to it? Do you know why all of this is happening? That's what God asks. Is there anybody wise enough to answer the question of why the land is being laid waste? Now, it's actually not a hard question. Uh, it's not a trick question. But most of God's people didn't know the answer or didn't want to admit the answer to it. So God answers it for us in the next verse. Look at verse 13. This is why God judges. Verse 13, and the Lord says, because they've forsaken my law that I've set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. That is, in a nutshell, God's explanation for God's judgment. God's judgment falls because of what we do to God and what we do with his law. We don't like to honor God as God, and we don't like to let God tell us how to live. From cover to cover, this is why God's wrath falls on human beings. Now for the last scene, verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women. Okay, the M-O-U-R-N. Mourning women, to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water for a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We're utterly shamed because we've left the land because they've cast down our dwellings. Now to understand that, you need to know something about the culture. At the time, this is still the case in many cultures today. There were something like professional mourners, okay? When someone died, for example, there would be people, especially women, who would be called to lead the other people in mourning, wailing, weeping for the dead. You've probably seen this portrayed in movies. This still happens in various cultures today. You probably read about stuff like this in Jesus' own day, still many years after this. And what is the call in this text? 
God is calling for the skillful women, the mourning professionals, to get ready in a hurry because doom has come. And then look at verse 20. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to lament. Teach your neighbors the sorrowful songs. Do you get the picture? It's going to be so bad. There'll be so much death so fast that the professionals need to teach their daughters how to mourn too. They got to get their neighbors together and teach them how to sing the sorrowful songs. Why? Look at verse 21. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets, the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men will fall like dung on the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none will gather them. A lot of writers talk about how that <coughs> sounds like stories of the grim reaper that we have today. Death is pictured climbing up into the windows. There's nowhere to hide. Death reaches its fingers even into the palaces. It cuts off the old and the young, the adults and the kids, the weak and the strong. It'd be so bad, there won't even be people to bury the dead. And all that will be heard in the city will be the sound of the weeping women. So if you step back and you think about the chapter as a whole, there's one constant sound throughout the chapter. The sound of what? It's the sound of weeping. It begins with Jeremiah weeping. It ends with all the women weeping. And in the middle, there's the sound of God weeping over the city. Now, this is an intense chapter of the Bible. What is the application? What did God want his people to do with this message? God tells us in the most well-known verses of the chapter. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. This is God's counsel to us. 9.23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is God's application of the message of Jeremiah 9. Do not lean on your own wisdom. Do not trust in your own might. Do not put your hope in your money. Your only hope is this. It's if you truly know the Lord, the God of faithful love and justice, the God who delights in those beautiful things. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I truly know the Lord? 
throughout the chapter, we've seen that the problem with Israel is that they did not truly know the Lord. Do you remember that from the beginning of the chapter? That is the fundamental problem. They did not know the Lord. One of the texts even says, they refused to know me, declares the Lord. They did not have a relationship with the Lord. They did not want one. And what happens if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, a relationship of trust and love? It leads ultimately to the fate described in Jeremiah 9. First, to the breakdown of human relationships and ultimately to the judgment of God. And so God's counsel to all of us is don't boast in anything but this, that you understand and know me. But that's not the end of the chapter. There's one final word of warning. Verse 25 and 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Depending on your translation, there's translation challenges in those verses, but I can summarize those verses pretty easily. God knew what was in the hearts of his people. They might not know him. He knew them very well, and he knows what they trust. Some trust their wisdom. Some trust their power. Some trust their wealth. And in these verses, God knew that many of his own people trusted in what? Their circumcision. After all, isn't that the sign that they're in the covenant? Isn't that the sign that they know the Lord? But what does God say? The days are coming when I'll punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Even the covenant sign would not be enough to spare them. Now, to understand those verses, though, you, you have to understand something that I don't know that I knew like years ago, but it is that the practice of circumcision, okay? We think, wow, that was really important for Israel, and it was. But it was not practiced exclusively by Israel. There were several other nations, especially anybody that had any connection to Abraham, okay, who also practiced some version of circumcision. And so what does God do in the text? He warns his people, the days are coming when I'll punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon. I'm going to punish them all. And did you notice what he, what he does? He just throws Judah right into the, the midst of a bunch of other nations of people who have that mark on their body but have no true knowledge of the Lord. Just, Judah is just like everybody else, uncircumcised in heart. And this is a warning to us, just like the sermon at the temple. Do not put your trust in a religious place or in a religious practice to save you. Don't put your hope in your wisdom, your wealth, or your power, 
or in your baptism or your parents or your church membership or your participation in this table. That is not what will make the difference at the judgment. What God will be looking for on that day is this. Do you truly know me? Has your heart been made new? Or as Jesus might say, have you been born again? As we wrap things up, this is a hard message, but the applications are simple. And I just would highlight the two things. <clears throat> One, the most important thing in your life is that you truly know the Lord. And it is clear from the story of Israel that it is possible to know a lot about the Lord and to even go to the Lord's place and do some of the Lord's stuff and not really know the Lord. To know the Lord like this means to have a relationship with the Lord of trust and love, where you acknowledge him as your king and you lean on him to save you. And what becomes clear as the Bible progresses past Jeremiah is that knowing the Lord in that specific saving way comes only through trusting Jesus, the Son of God. Knowing the Lord comes through trusting the Lord made flesh who died and lived, who died and rose to bring us to God. As, we, as Joel read earlier, the message of the cross is a foolish message, but we preach Christ crucified and risen anyway. Because as Paul tells us in that text, all we have is in Christ, through Christ. Why? So that none of us can boast in anything else in the presence of God. Instead of boasting in other things, how does Paul end that chapter that Joel read? With this verse from Jeremiah. As it is written, let the one who boasts boast only in the Lord. And then the second application would be for those who have come to know the Lord. We should not walk away from Jeremiah 9 without seeing something else as well. And what is that? It is that we, as God's people, need more compassion for those who are headed to judgment. There is perhaps more weeping in Jeremiah 9 than any other chapter in the Bible. Jeremiah is weeping. The women are weeping. And most shockingly, in the picture in the middle of the chapter, even God is weeping. And all of that weeping is for what? It's for the death of the wicked. The death of those who do not know the Lord. But may God grant us the very heart of Jesus who wept over his city. May God grant us the heart of Jesus who came here specifically to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Father, would you... 
grip us with the pictures and the sounds of this text, may we not soon forget it. I pray for those who may be here today who have been learning about you, but who do not yet know you personally by faith in your son. I pray for them that they might come to know you today. And Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you. Lord, would you give us the heart of Jesus for those who don't. May our eyes not grow dry. May our hearts not grow hard when we think of those that we know and love who do not know and love you. I pray that you will stir us through this text that we might spread the good news of Jesus even in the days ahead of us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.